Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! <laughs> Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with people who know Vegas. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Vegas. It's great to see Vegas back. All the excitement, the crowds, the shows. Today, we will discuss two pieces of the Vegas entertainment puzzle, comedy and music. In a moment, you'll meet a very funny man who is back making us laugh almost every night of the week. Brandon James will join us to discuss how he got into comedy and what drives him to make you laugh. Later in the show, you'll hear from author Ben Yagoda, who will discuss why the Great American Songbook is still a fan favorite. All that and your Vegas insider, Scott Robin of VitalVegas.com, who drops by to discuss the fun of getting loud at the crap stables. Let's go to Vegas, baby. Let's go tonight. Let's go Comedy is back in Let's Las Vegas. Vegas. We're excited about it. Some of those great comedians on the Strip and around the area are back working. And one of those we want to make sure you go out and see is Brandon James. He's at the Jokesters Comedy Club inside the Alexis Park All Suite Resort. Brandon, it must feel good to get back on stage after uh, this uh, unexpected time out. It does. It does. And uh, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. I just want to say thank you to everybody. It's, uh, it's great to be here. But, uh, but yeah, we're, we're very, very excited. Uh, I could not be happier to see uh, what's happening right now uh, in Las Vegas and uh, around the country. Entertainment's back. So Yeah, thank God. I'm really looking forward to it. Now I want to talk about your history because I think you have a really interesting background. You grew up as kind of a heavy kid at the time in North Dakota. And I'm thinking, that had to be tough, right? Because I grew up that way and I know... Kids aren't exactly the friendliest for that. How do you go from that to becoming a comedian? You know, it's. I've always said, I, I feel like when you grow up fat, you get funny. I think that's the way it works. <laughs> and, uh, for, you know, for me, that was certainly the case because, um, you know, yeah, I was kind of that kid at the lunch table that would, you know, I'd tell the funny stories and, and you know, I'd have a lot of people kind of gather around uh, at the lunch table. And that kind of became my thing and, and my way to kind of make friends. And, uh, you know, there, there can be some advantages to that. So, uh, I think it's one of the biggest reasons actually that I do comedy now. Yeah. And and I think when you, when you have a weight issue, people are looking and so forth, what better way to fight back than with comedy? People like that and they're looking at you in a whole different way. Absolutely. Uh, Cause I, I, you know, I knew I wasn't going to impress anybody with my, you know, abdominal muscles or something, you know, I didn't, <laughs> that wasn't me. So, uh, for me, yeah, that, you know, being, being funny was kind of the way that I would connect with other people. Yeah. And you were kind of what George Carlin used to talk about the class clown, right? Cause we all remember that. And, and those kids were really funny and kind of, kind of through the, the doldrums of getting through, uh, first grade, second grade, all the way on up to high school. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's just, that's just kind of the way that I was. And, um, that's kind of the circle that I've been in, you know, most of my life is I, I just, uh, I love hanging around comedy and comedians and, um, you know, just to be near the comedy is, is kind of my happy place. It always has been. So. 
Well, yeah, you started watching shows like Saturday Night Live and stuff like that, right? Is that kind of where you got the bug for it? Go, I, I would like to do this. It was. It was, you know, because it wasn't like I was out, you know, dating girls or anything, you know, so I was chubby <laughs> still. And, <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't the guy that went to the prom and, you know, homecoming and stuff like that. I was the guy that was at home, uh, yeah, you know, watching SNL, watching, uh, you know, people like Chris Farley, who's one of my biggest heroes, because, you know, he was a big guy. And, uh, you know, he really used that to his advantage and, and made an entire career out of that. So to me, that was very inspiring at the time. And, um, you know, yeah, that's that's just always kind of the way that I've been. So, well, you know, it is sort of true about like Farley. I'm thinking, or even John Belushi was. You didn't think of him as, oh, that's the the big comedian. That's just a funny guy, and that's because they were so talented. Was that one of those things too? Because you're kind of graded on a different level. Suddenly now, who's the person that really makes me laugh? Absolutely, yeah. It's you know, it's it can be an advantage for sure. Well, tell me, you know, when did you realize, because you're doing this, you're getting laughs, it's your way of uh, getting attention and so forth, and then you, you head off to UNLV, which is great, we're happy you came out here, but when did you decide, like, you know what, I can actually do this for real and get paid for it? You know, it's it's interesting, I I actually, uh, yeah, I, had a, I got a regular job, I went to college, all those things, and, you know, when I was younger, I used to think, you know, well, I, I need to get a a serious adult career, you know, that's kind of, you know, what we're all sort of raised to do, right? Nobody's, you know, taught to follow their dreams or anything when you're young, even though I wish we were. And, um, so I, that's kind of the path that I was on at that time. And I, again, I've always loved comedy. So I would write these jokes, you know, uh, I had no idea what I was ever going to do with them. If anything, uh, you know, I, I can recall so many times pulling up to work, you know, at my normal job and I would have an idea and I might just, you know, record that idea into my phone or, or write it down in the sketch pad or something really quick and just kind of file it away. And then I would go into my job, my normal job. And, you know, nobody would ever know, you know, it was like, I was almost like a secret comedian or something. And I went to graduate school and when I was done, I was burnt out and I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to go for it. I don't know what's going to happen but I got to do it. It was just this thing inside of me. It always has been. So, Yeah, and, yeah. and it's more than being, like you say, the funny guy. Because if anybody's ever seen an amateur night, you realize how really hard it is. Because these people are funny when they're talking with their friends and stuff and people laugh and so forth. You get up on stage and you hold the microphone. <laughs> and, and, and was that one of those things where you did it, it was hard, and you go, all right, I, I, I'm going to keep working at this. Because it's obviously, uh, anybody that thinks it's, it's easy, you know, go ahead and try that sometime and see how that works out. <laughs> yeah, comedy can be very, very humbling, uh, certainly in the beginning, and it definitely was for me. Um, you know, some of the best comedy advice I've ever heard is if you want to get good at comedy, you got to get up there and fail, you know. Yeah. And uh, believe me, I did. I, <laughs> I failed like a champ many nights. So, um, but, you know, as a lot of uh, comedy mentors and such have told me over the, over the past few years, you know, if you haven't wanted to quit comedy like 10 times in your career, you're not a real comedian, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. So. Well, I got to ask you, so you're up there, you're trying different things. What was the first either joke or series of jokes that really clicked and you go, okay, <laughs> this works? You know, despite all, this, all the groans or all the, you know, people ignoring you, you get that one either one joke or one series of jokes, one bit that just clicks and, and, and kills. 
Um, so I, I've always liked to write about things that are, are true to me or, or somehow based in, in my own life experience in some way. Um, you know, perhaps like an embellished version of those things, but they're things that are rooted in reality. And so one of my first jokes that really kind of seemed to connect and catch on with people was, uh, you know, a lot of my life people, for whatever reason, I, I guess because I, I look clean cut, I'm very nice to people, just really believe in that. And people would always think, like, for some reason, they'd, they'd go, hey, man, like, you know, are you, are you Mormon or something? <laughs> you know, because yeah. I, I was just really friendly. And I'm not Mormon. And so I used to have this joke that I go, you know, people think I'm Mormon, and it's like, what, you know, like, I can't ride a bike in a shirt and tie? You know? <laughs> and I kind of developed that into a bit about how people always, always think that and assume that, you know, about me. And uh, it just kind of clicked, and so... That's one of the first uh, jokes, one of my earliest jokes that, uh, you know, seemed to, seemed to do well, so I was happy. Back with more from comedian Brandon James in a moment. Just a reminder, please visit Vegas Never Sleeps Online. For the best in Vegas, it's VegasNeverSleeps.com. And for great sports, it's Sports R-A-C-X, which is available on radio stations nationwide and wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Sports R-A-C-X. And later today on Sports Rockin' Tours, you'll meet the real-life Rocky Balboa, his name is Chuck Wepner. Not only that, but you'll also hear from a couple of Chuck's closest friends who share some great stories from Chuck's career. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Manchie, coast to coast on the Talk Media Network. If you love great sound, you'll love Oont Speakers. Introducing their new sports action line, created especially for water sports. Meet Troy, one of the idea guys. When you combine the tech along with these killer new designs, having it by the pool at home or by the hotel, can't go wrong. Be seen, be heard. Go to theoonts.com. That's T-H-E-O-O-N-T-Z.com. When you go to Las Vegas, you have to know what you're going to go see, and there's no better place on the web to go than VitalVegas.com. You hear Scott Robin, our Vegas insider, every week. What are people going to find when they go to your site, Scott? Everything you need to know about Las Vegas, from shows and restaurants and a lot of inside dirt that you won't hear anywhere else. And a lot of photos, too, and a lot of snark, right? That is the case. <laughs> yes. You can't miss it. VitalVegas.com. What if every dollar you invested into your training program turned into $30 of revenue? What if your learning program was so engaging that your employees looked forward to annual trainings? And what if you could monitor the success and effectiveness of your curriculum with quantifiable metrics? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. E-learning has made each of these scenarios possible, utilizing tools such as virtual and augmented reality, simulations, and online instructor-led training provides a safe environment for employees to learn at their own pace. Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Here at Epsilon XR, we have 50 years of experience in creating powerful and effective training programs. We combine proven training methods with cutting-edge technology to create immersive training experiences. Are you ready to take your training program to the next level? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Training.epsilonxr.com. 
Welcome back to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to comedian Brandon James, who regularly appears at the Alexis Park Resort. Well, yeah, I think people kind of root for you. I mean, we'll send them to your website so they can see it, but... Again, you're kind of unassuming. If you walk out, yeah, you you look like the guy, uh, the guy next door. You know, nice guy. It's not. Uh, uh, you go, all right, make me laugh, which kind of makes it tough on you. But I, I think they kind of start rooting for you, Brandon, right away when they see you. Yeah, I mean, it, it just wouldn't be natural to me. Like you know, so many of my of my comedy heroes were you know guys that were on stage wearing like the like the leather jacket and you know they they kind of had like that edge about them, right. And I used to think that that's what was cool, but if I tried to do that, that just wouldn't be natural for me. You know, that just isn't who I am. So, you know, I go up there in a a button-down shirt, and, you know, I I shave for every show, and uh, I just just be me, man. That's kind of my, my style up there, so... Yeah, and I think people see through that. I mean, you think of the the Dice Clay stuff and Sam Kinison and all those great acts, but there was only one of them. And if somebody else tried to do that same thing, pe- people would pick about that right away. I mean, you got to be able to sell it, right? Is it part of what you're, you know, of of who you are? And and if your thing is okay, you know, let's talk about something. You know, Jerry Seinfeld made a great career out of just observing things that we all see. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think, too, you know, uh, along those lines, like the first few years of comedy, you know, you, you kind of try to do what you think you're, you're quote, supposed to do mm-hmm. instead of doing what's true to you, you know. And, you know, at first that's kind of what I would do. But now, you know, after several more years in, you know, I, I really try to just do what feels natural to me and, you know, have my own style and, you know, my own original uh, material for my life. So, and is there a point in the career where you just start feeling comfortable up there? Like, you know, I mean, you you always knew that's kind of where you were supposed to be, but then once you get up there, okay, this is where I work. I, I would imagine it, it comes to that part, and that's when you can kind of get away from God. I hope this doesn't fall apart. To like, okay, let's sharpen, let's get this tighter, let's uh, you know keep and 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 really pay attention to the response you're getting for each joke. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've always said that, you know, the, the first couple of years, you want nothing more up on that stage than to have that validation from the audience. You know, you just, you want nothing more than for them to laugh at you. And if they don't, you know, you just come off stage feeling like, ah, oh, I don't, I don't know if this is for me. So you want to kind of prove to yourself first that, you know, you can do this. It's for you. You're capable of getting laughs, but after you stop needing that validation from the crowd, that's actually the point that I think, you know, the potential for something really interesting and original to happen up there, you know, begins because you don't really need that validation. You've got it already. You know, you can do it. Now Mm -hmm. let's do something original and interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And how is playing Vegas? Because I would think the one nice thing about Vegas, I could see... People are in a good mood when they're here. On the other hand, though, up and down the strip and people coming in, there's a lot of competition, too. So is, is this kind of a fun place to play? It is. It is. And it's really unlike anywhere else in the country um, because we have people from everywhere in Vegas. You know, you don't know what kind of crowd you're going to come out to every single night, every single show. Um, you know, I, I work a lot here at Delirious Comedy Club, for example, 
Mm-hmm. We do very often there are three shows a night, six, eight, ten. And because it's Vegas, every one of those crowds, six, eight, and ten PM is all unique because there's people from anywhere and everywhere. And it's it's totally unique, totally different than anywhere else you'd play in the country. So it's it's an interesting thing, yeah. Now I think that's kind of interesting. Like you say, is there a big difference between the, the late show and the six o'clock show? I mean, do you find like that the, the uh, you know the later show they've been imbibing a bit, and uh, consequently uh, they're looking for a different type of humor, or is it pretty much the same across the board? Um, I would say the late show. Yeah, they're they're definitely oftentimes anyway, especially if it's a weekend show, they're kind of ready to party at that late show. You know, second show Friday is is notorious, of course, for being a little unpredictable. You're not sure if they're going to be, you know, tired from working during the week or if they're going to want to party because it's Friday night. But, uh, yeah, I would say the earlier show, we tend to get a little bit more more of a senior crowd. Um, You know, so sometimes, you know, you want to make sure you're a little bit cleaner at those shows. But still, you know, I've had plenty of 6 p.m. shows where (laughs) they were ready to party at 6 p.m. Let me tell you. Well, yeah, you know, and I've always wondered, Brandon, do you do like a, uh, in football terms, do you audible up there sometimes where if you go, wow, these guys are getting into this type of humor or they're, they're a little bit more rowdy than I anticipated, let me pull in some of that material, or is it pretty much everybody gets the same thing and uh, just uh, it hope hope it works? Um, I've, I've kind of gone to a place where I try to be uh, a little bit of a chameleon, so I do kind of adapt based on what, they seem to want that night. I mean, it's still in general, um, you know, it's my act. I tend to be a, you know, a pretty clean comedian. That's the way I like to work. I work clean primarily, but you know, I do keep a few different kind of jokes on the side, you know, for certain nights, if, if they seem to prefer a certain type of humor or something, then yeah, I might kind of go that direction. You know, there's a bachelor party in town or whatever, or that kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it happens. It happened. <laughs> oh, I'll bet. You know, it's it's kind of fun, too. I was looking at some of the people you played with, and these guys like Joe Rogan, who I'll bet you you'd like to learn how he podcasts, because uh, I don't know how much money he makes but uh, and the huge audience he has. But when I think about guys like him, Kevin Nealon, Daryl Hammond, do you like um, try to pick up on some stuff with them? And it must be kind of fun, too, because they're all different, and it's all different styles than you have, and you guys can play off each other. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, any time that I play, you know, uh, with I, I do a show with a very you know famous comic, or especially um, even if, even if it's not a comedian that maybe is like a household name, but just has been in the business for you know thirty plus years, you know, something like that. I always hope that just a little bit of that magic, just through osmosis, being around them, kind of rubs off. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, it's it's one of the greatest things in the world, and you know, comics to me seem very unique in that so many comedians I've met who, you know, were famous and were very well known, um, especially like at the comedy store, for example, in LA, uh, a lot of times they're much more down to earth than I expected. You know, you, you, mm-hmm. it's a little intimidating almost to meet them sometimes at the show when they, they come walking in. But so many comics have, have, uh, you know, famous comedians have been so kind to me and, and so, you know, encouraging and, so it's just, it's a very unique and, and special community, you know, the stand-up community. So. 
More with funny man Brandon James in a few moments. Don't forget to follow Sports Rock and Tours, which now follows this show on most of these stations. You can also visit Sports RACX wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Manchi nationwide on the Talk Media Network. Ciao, I am Giada Valenti. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. If you love great sound, you'll love Oomph Speakers. Meet Troy, one of the idea guys who helped develop these fine speakers. Troy, these speakers would be great for the beach, the pool, or the golf course. Absolutely. With our golf speaker, it's a bit smaller, and it'll attach to both a powered cart and a pull cart. Be seen, be heard. Go to theoonts.com. That's T-H-E-O-O-N-T-Z.com. Now, let's return to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps. We are chatting with comedian Brandon James about the life of a comic in Las Vegas. Yeah, and that's it's good to hear that. I'm glad to hear because there is a certain camaraderie. Only they know what it's like. They've been there. They know what it's like to step up there. What you guys do is really uh, a unique and... Very difficult in the way type job. You know, people talk about it's hard to go and be an ad professional athlete. Well, yeah, it is. But what you do too, a lot of people would be scared to death. I know, like my if my father could see what you do, he couldn't stand up for two seconds. You know, he's a very confident guy, but you put a microphone in front of him, and boy, he'd fall apart. So I think we really admire what what you do, and to make people laugh, it's not it's not an easy thing. I appreciate that. I appreciate that so much. And, you know, it's, I know, I think it was Dennis Leary who actually said, you would have to be borderline insane to want to get up in front of a crowd of people and not only speak to these people who are complete strangers to you, but now also try to entertain them and make them laugh. You know, it's some nights it's, it's not unlike going in front of a firing squad, you know, depending (laughs) on the crowd. So, um, but you know, it just, there's at the same time, there is just nothing better and I've told so many friends of mine who are not comedians this, that at the same time, there's nothing better than just making an entire room of people feel great, you know, if only for an hour or, or less. And, you know, that to me is it's worth everything. It's worth the struggle. It's worth the, you know, all the travel that can be involved. Um, you know, I, there's so many times where, you know, in comedy, you're not always, you know, paid that much to do the show if at all and it just it in the end it doesn't matter because it, to make people feel that good you know especially during difficult times uh, it's it's the best feeling in the world so well yeah and it, it's fun to watch that because you can if you've ever been to a comedy club and you see somebody who's just killing up there and is picking up it's fun to be part of the crowd you know you you know when somebody's on top and it, and sometimes I love going to comedy shows because you maybe you haven't heard of this person and you find, wow, that's some great stuff. I, ne- I never would have heard it if I hadn't gone to this club. So I think people really need to go out to Jokesters. And uh, So tell us, when are you playing out there? What, what nights can we find you out at Jokesters Comedy Club over at Alexis Park? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So uh, I am uh, the house MC 
right now at Jokester's Comedy Club. Uh, it's at the Alexis Park Resort here in Vegas. Uh, Alexis Park is located right next to what used to be the Hard Rock Hotel, uh, which I believe is now the Virgin Hotel. Right. And we're there every night at 9.30 p.m. And I, I, you can also find me at Delirious Comedy Club, which mm-hmm. is at the Downtown Grand. And that's here in Vegas, too, near Fremont Street. And we're there every night at 8 and 10, and also Friday, Saturday, we're there uh, at an additional 6 p.m. show as well. Brandon James, a very funny guy. You'll love his show, trust me. Uh, let's tell me your website, too, because you can always uh, at least keep an eye on what you're doing and so forth through that. Sure. Uh, yeah, you can find me at brandonjamescomedy.com. Uh, I've got my bio there and, uh, you know, some different information about shows I've done, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, check out brandonjamescomedy.com. Yeah, and thank you. It's nice to go to a, to a place where I don't have to figure out maybe misspell it or something. Brandon James is exactly like it sounds. Brandon, thank you <laughs> so much. Really enjoyed it, and we look forward to seeing you. Absolutely, yeah. Come on out to the show. Uh, we're having a great time. Let's make the switch now from comedy to the kind of music that lives on from generation to generation. Fly me to the moon, let me play among the stars, let me see what spring is like gone. Well, we've all heard of the Great American Songbook. It's something, if you listen to Sinatra music or anything like that, you've always heard it. It's the music of Gershwin, Porter, Irving Berlin, and that sort of thing from the 1930s and 40s and so forth. And 1950 came along and kind of went away, and we're going to find out about that with acclaimed cultural critic Ben Ugoda, who uh, has written for Slate, the New York Times, Esquire, and the American Scholar. He's a journalism professor at the University of Delaware and wrote this great book called The B-Side. And Ben, uh, first of all, Maybe uh, you can give more of an explanation of the Great American Songbook because that's so popular. You even nowadays have people like uh, Rod Stewart and Paul McCartney trying to sing some of these things. It's music that has, is still popular today. No question about it, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the term Great American Songbook dated from, I believe, uh, it was an album that Carmen McRae put out in the 70s. And it, it just stuck because it seems so right. And... Uh, the, the 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 nature or the particular nature of the songs in that songbook varies a little bit according to who's doing the counting. I mean, it's not an official tally, but basically people understand that there's some several hundred songs that were written, as you say, the bulk of them in that period between the uh, the mid 1920s and the late 40s into the early 50s that. Uh, have stood the test of time. I mean, they, they're, they're just a great body of work. And as you say, uh, uh, people like Rod Stewart, uh, aging rockers tend to try to revive their careers by doing albums of them. And this has been going on for a long time as well. Back in the 80s, Willie Nelson did one. Linda Ronstadt did a series. Carly Simon did one. And now even, uh, e- 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 even this this particular winter, next week, Bob Dylan is coming out with his new CD that's all going to be relatively obscure songs from the period that had all been done previously by Frank Sinatra. You would might consider it to be like the bizarro world, Bob Dylan, but <laughs> at this late date, they're having a bit of a meeting of the minds. Yeah, I, I saw that. Have you had any chance to listen to any of that? I, I have, in fact. Uh, Dylan has released two of the songs, um, on the CD, one one's a song called "Stay with Me" that was the theme from a 1963 movie called "The Cardinal," and a very obscure song. 
And, and Dylan does a very, uh, you can listen to it on his website, bobdylan.com, a very affecting, spare, ra- rather moving version of it. And the other is uh, an even more obscure song from the 40s called Full Moon and Empty Arms that he put out some months back. And that, again, uh, he, he puts it over kind of well. It'll be interesting to see what the reaction is to this CD when it comes out next week. Well, I'm glad to hear that, because he put a Christmas album out uh, a year or two ago that was almost sounded like a joke, you know? And you're thinking, oh, man, this poor guy has lost it. He's so great. So I'm really kind of excited about that. That's And this music is so great, too. What is it? I mean, you know, we've lost the Gershwins and that sort of thing. And at the same time, though, I guess... Rock has had its people like McCartney and Lennon and so forth that have written some great stuff. But what is it about that type of music that has really stood the test of time in your mind? Well, um, you know, the, the, the proof of the pudding is the tasting. So, you know, we can see that it still, it still appeals. What, what are the qualities uh, of it? I, I guess um, one word I'd use is sophistication. It's, it's musically and also lyrically sophisticated. Uh, great lyricists like Lorenz Hart and Ira Gershwin and Yip Harburg. Um, the, the key thing to me is, um, I guess two things. One, just a kind of coincidence of genius, that, that all these songwriters uh, were born within about a 15-year period of each other, amazingly enough. And they came around at the same time, and they inspired each other, almost like, you know, I'm a tennis fan, and seeing the period when there's uh, Federer and Nadal and Djokovic is kind of the same thing. They're so great, and each of them the rivals to, to greatness. So there was that. The other thing that comes to mind is, is the importance of jazz. Um, you know, uh, in the period when these men, and they're all men, uh, for the mo- almost all men, were writing in, in, in the 20s, that was when jazz was coming to the fore. So all the great uh, rhythms and harmonies of jazz music, these guys totally absorbed and listened to and reflected that in their songs. And then Beyond that, once they wrote the songs, great jazz musicians like uh, Billy Holiday, uh, Benny Goodman, Lester Young, uh, did great improvisations with the songs. They really could stand up to it. They 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 had the uh, emotional resonance yet complexity and sophistication that they could hold up and still do hold up to multiple interpretations. More with Ben Yagoda, author of The B-Side, The Death of Tim Pan Alley, and The Rebirth of the Great American Song, in just a moment. Make sure to listen to Sports Rockin' Tours, which follows Vegas Never Sleeps in most markets. If your station doesn't carry it, call them and tell them to carry it. In the meantime, though, you can go to Sports R-A-C-X wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Sports R-A-C-X. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Coast to Coast on the Talk Media Network. Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. 
perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Welcome back to Vegas Never Sleeps. You are listening to Ben Yagoda, author of the really great book, The B-Side, The Death of Tim Pan Alley, and The Rebirth of the Great American Song. Yeah, and part of that is the great singers of the time. I mean, the, the Frank Sinatra, the Bing Crosby, they all sang this music, which I guess lent itself to how good this music was because all these different interpretations, the song was still great. Absolutely. You know, and you would see in, in, in that period in the 40s, a song would come out and then immediately, or if it was a good song, one or two people would put out records. If they did well, then a dozen or 15 other interpretations would come out. And, you know, cover songs we still have them today, but you can't imagine it on that level. And it was sort of a Darwinian struggle each time that the best one would 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 top the charts and the others would go by the wayside but yeah the songs were so good that they could stand up to these multiple interpretations so a lot of people blame rock and roll for the death of this but really your book covers it well it was really even a little before that in 1950 when you had things like you know how much is a doggy in the window uh, come on to my house you know these were the popular songs at that time what happened i mean is it just that you know, again, these were done so well that they, they stopped doing these things, or uh, did just America's well, taste go a different way, or what? Yeah, a, a lot of different things. You know, no, no one sort of stood up and, and stopped, but, but if you look at the, the trade magazines at the time, in late 40s and early 50s, Variety and Billboard, people are saying, where are the great songs? You know, where are the songs of, of the Gershwins? And I mean, George Gershwin was dead, but these other folks were still around. And, you know, the great songwriters of Berlin and Cole Porter and Rogers and Hammerstein by that time were on Broadway and, and doing great stuff. But the sort of the bottom had fallen out of the industry. Um, uh, the, 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 the well had gotten a little bit dry. And at the same time, I think you mentioned public taste had changed. So how much is that dog in the window? That was number one in the country for eight weeks in a row. And, and that wasn't through any sort of payola or conspiracy or anything like that. It was because people liked it. People, you know, the war was over. The Depression was over. Uh, young servicemen had come home. were starting families. They didn't want to be challenged. They didn't want to go out and jitterbug. They wanted to stay home and listen to the radio, look at the TV, and you know have have songs that would be that would be fun, enjoyable. In the parlance of a later date, they were after easy listening. So novelty songs, ballads, uh, sentimental ballads by Doris Day or someone like that. Those were the songs that that were popular in that period. And as you say, several years before rock and roll hit. 
Yeah, and then rock and roll comes, and it's kind of changed our uh, the way we listen to music because now you, there's this thing called classic rock, which was the stuff that I grew up with, which is rock. And, you know, it's funny because I see, and I wanted to get your take on it, some of that classic rock, some of the stuff from Lennon and McCartney and uh, just some of the great stuff, even, some, even going back to the 50s with the Chuck Berry and so forth, that's almost become kind of uh, American Songbook Part 2 because you're seeing today's rockers and so forth playing it. You're hearing a lot of, like, my kids and stuff, listen to classic rock. Yeah. Do you see a little of that? I, I, well, definitely. And, you know, it, it's the reason why I wanted to make sure the subtitle of the book's the B-side. It's the death of Tin Pen Alley, but the rebirth of the great American song. You know, I don't want to be one of those get-off-my-lawn people who says everything was great then, then it ended, and everything since then stinks. And I, and I certainly don't want to say that, nor do I believe it. Uh, it's different. It's different. And, you know, you mentioned the Beatles. They're, they're such... They're geniuses on the level of these earlier people, the Gershwins. Very different, but equally influential. I mean, the Beatles came along. They they listened to all this stuff. They listened to American pop music, Tin Pan Alley stuff, and in fact covered some of it in their own, like, uh, 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 yeah. the, the Meredith Wilson song from, um, from Music Man. There were bells on the hill, but I never heard them ringing Till There Was You, they had in one of their first albums. So, uh, but, but beyond that, they gave other younger writers a, a sort of sense of how one could write a great song in, in this era. And com- complex, uh, sophisticated, not simplistic. Um, so it's the songs themselves, but equally important, the example they gave. And, and, the, and the, the final key thing is that they set the idea that the writer would perform his or her own songs. Uh, you know, in the yeah. earlier model, uh, the writer would be in one cubicle and the performer in another. Uh, they wouldn't cross. But with the Beatles and subsequent rockers and singer-songwriters of Paul Simon and Joni Mitchell, uh, they were performing their own material. And the folks I've mentioned have done great things with that idea as well. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps, and we're speaking to Ben Yagoda, author of The B-Side, The Death of Tim Pan Alley, and The Rebirth of the Great American Song. Yeah, there's not too many people out there anymore like that that just write songs. I mean, I'm thinking about maybe Bernie, uh, I can't think of his last name, that works with Elton John. They're used to Bernie write this. Toppin, yeah. Yeah, Bernie Toppin. But there's not really a lot of those, are there? No, and you know, the one place where you see that is Nashville. That's the place uh, in the country song writing and country music industry that has the biggest similarity with the classic tin penale with that division of labor. You still see that there. But in, in terms of mainstream pop music, um, well, and then I guess the other exception would be the, the, the sort of newer pop sounds like a, you know, a, a Britney Spears or a Katy Perry, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they don't write their own material yeah. either. But in, in the rock genre, ever since the Beatles, is, there's been the expectation that you write your own songs. Well, final question, Ben. As you look at this stuff, we, we have some great stuff coming at now, but do you think the reason we don't have a, the, the quote-unquote American songbook anymore like we remember it is because the music is so diversified. I mean, you talked about country, you know, I mean, you just go down, up and down your radio dial, you'll hear country, you can hear the, you know, kind of new wave music, uh, hard yeah. rock, cold, you know, old rock, and so forth. Yeah, hip-hop, country, folk, uh, uh, neo-folk, neo-country, yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, there's good and there's bad in that period of the 
30s and 40s, everything was unified, and that led to great things. But then a lot of things, a lot of voices weren't heard. I mean, you didn't hear African-American uh, performers uh, doing their own stuff on the radio uh, the, the way you do now. And country, and country and western was pretty much shut out of the national scene. So, yeah, with, with, with the loss of that unity comes the, the, the refreshingness of lots of different kinds of sounds. Lots of different voices are heard. Uh, you can't put the genie back in the bottle. No, the book, people are going to love it, whether you're from that era and you just love that music or whether you want to hear about what's happening. I mean, there's some great interviews in there with Linda Ronstadt, Randy Newman, Herb Alpert. Just a great look at all this. I love the book, uh, Ben. One last thing. Is this why we find even kids today, I know my daughter goes to college, and it's amazing how many people play some Sinatra music. It's on their iPods. I mean, Tony Bennett is big in there. I I think that's absolutely right. You know, it's it's not going to go away, and it's thanks in large part to people like um, Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra you just mentioned, who kept it alive. Uh, Sinatra did in his career, and his hundredth birthday, by the way, is coming up next uh, this year. Excuse me, and Bennett is still out there with Lady Gaga, still performing this music, and uh, I. I Hate to make predictions of any kind, but I will say that, yeah, I agree, this will never die. Well, the book is the B-side. Thanks so much for being with us, Ben. Really enjoyed it. Okay, good. I appreciate your having me. Thank you. Well, as we mentioned in the open, the excitement of Vegas is back, and that includes at the tables. Your Vegas insider, Scott Robin, has a few thoughts on this. I would imagine that even in the finest casinos, they like it when people are screaming and yelling because it adds to the excitement of the place. It adds to the excitement, and it's also free advertising. <laughs> You'll see that uh, uh, there's uh, a lot of attractions around town that are thrill rides, and what everybody says is, like, you scream as much as you want because that's free advertising for our attraction. Same for a craps table. The last thing you want is a dead, empty craps table. So when people get rowdy, it's part of the fun. But that's why it's... It's additionally offensive if somebody's playing in a way that's detrimental to the table because it is a communal game. It's a, it's a social game. Every At a blackjack table, you could be sitting next to someone who's losing and you're winning. That happens all the time. But at a craps table, everybody's winning, everybody's playing, everybody's rooting for the same outcome except that one guy who has to cause trouble. And then it's, it's just a lot of fun to see that person lose. I generally take no joy from people losing, but that one guy who's causing trouble, I want him out. I want him broke, and I never want him him to never come back. Thank you, Scott. Make sure to follow Scott every day at his webpage, VitalVegas.com. Coming up next is Sports Rock and Tours. If your local station doesn't carry it, you can go to Sports RACX wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Sports RACX. It's short for Sports Rock and Tours. And please follow both Vegas Never Sleeps and Sports Rock and Tours on all special media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Maggi reminding you, Vegas Never Sleeps. Vegas, here we go!